My name's Annette, and I am an alcoholic. And I want to thank Jerry and the committee for having me here. Um, you know, when you get to be a drunk, you don't get invited very many places, and then you get to be an alcoholic, and sometimes you do. Is that better? Um, this is real special to me. I came to my first big shindig up here 24 years ago. Um, I got sober uh, in December the 7th of 1977. And uh, it's just, it's real special to come back and see a lot of the people that are here and hear about some of the people that aren't here. It's very sad, but um, I really appreciate the committee having me. I appreciate a beautiful room and a great gift. And um, I'm just glad I'm the first speaker. <laughs> you are the speakers, I'll fail for you, but I'm just getting mine over. Um, I love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. That was not true for my brother. My brother was, uh, and I always dedicate my talk to him since 1996. He was age 51. He was a beautiful man. He tried to get sober many times. He stayed sober four and a half years. He went to the liquor store. No, he went to his daughter's church and bought a cemetery plot. He went to the liquor store, and it took him eight months to get back to the cemetery. And he got back to that cemetery drinking Bud Light. And I've had many alcoholics tell me that beer wouldn't kill him. I'm here to tell you it killed my beautiful brother. And in some way and somehow, I hope that helps one person in this room. Uh, and I hope his death won't go unwarranted. I was a country girl. I was raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and back then it was country. Uh, we lived on a farm, and I slopped hog, gathered eggs, and milked cows till I was a sophomore in high school. And my daddy was a man that um, loved being on a farm. He loved working. He started a pipeline and construction company when he was in 1948, and he taught each and every one of us children how to work. And if I don't know how to do anything else, I know how to work. Um, he made sure that each one of us could take care of ourselves, and I'm mighty grateful for that today. There was no drinking in my home. I have my older brother, who I told you was dead, and I have a younger sister that's 10 years younger than I am. And uh, we work together today, and we have a great relationship. It hadn't always been that way for me and her. Uh, but we've learned to get along, and, and as you get older, you don't like to... The only physical fight I had with her, she broke my toe. And... Uh, <laughs> We just decided we wouldn't fight anymore. Uh, she doesn't have a drinking problem. My brother, I told you, was an alcoholic. Um, well, I come from a long line of alcoholics. But when I got sober, nobody ever told me about anything about alcohol, drinking, or whatever until I got sober. And then I found out everybody in my family was alcoholic on my daddy's side. <laughs> And I found out my grandmother loved Valium. 
you know. And I mean, it's like, oh, did you know this? Did you not know? No, y'all never told us that. And I don't think it would have mattered. Because when I took that first drink when I was 24 years old, there was nothing in the world that made me feel any better. There was nothing in the world that made me look any better or dance any better. You know, I just thought I was Miss Giddy Tushy. Um, and from that time on, I looked for that feeling that I got when I was 24 years old. And it never worked like that charm did that first night I drank. Um, like I told you, there was no drinking in my home. When I got to be an alcoholic and got sober, my, my mother said, she told me, she said, you know, I never was mad at you for being an alcoholic. And I, she said, but I sure was mad at you for taking that first drink. You knew better. <laughs> I taught you better. And she did. Uh, because I loved our family life. Uh, we did everything as a family. My brother had polio, and my daddy went out and found out what my brother could do for activities, and that was skiing at the lake. That was the only thing that he could do with his bad leg, and daddy cultivated that, and that's what kind of parents that I grew up with. So I can't blame anything. I knew better than to take that first drink. I want to tell all you beautiful Al-Anons, had it not been for the program of uh, Al-Anon, I don't think I would have got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I had been to AA one time, and my mother and father kept on going to Al-Anon, and I hated it. Uh, (laughs) They got better. When I took that first drink, I was separated And I took that first drink downtown at the scene. And when I started drinking, you had to dress up and go downtown Atlanta because there weren't any bars or any place to go and drink. I had already been married and had one son by the time I had my first drink. I know I'm about 24 years old, and I was in the middle of my divorce. Um, At the scene that night, there was a man walked across the floor and asked me to dance. And he looked like the Marlboro Man. (laughs) And I danced with him. And I fell in love with him by the third dance. Uh, He was wonderful. He was a railroad man. And uh, he was from Abbeville, South Carolina. He worked for um, Seaboard Coastline Railroad back then. That was the name of it. And, um, man, he was mine. I dated him and went with him. Um, I got my first divorce. And um, this man taught me how to drink. We'd sit and practice because I drank um, the sissy drinks, you know, like the Sprite and whatever. And no, 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 you had to drink bourbon and water. And you got to drink to get to drink bourbon and water. And uh, he taught me well, and I loved it. He was working an out-to-line job then in Tucker, Georgia, and um, we got married after he got his divorce. Uh, I have to tell you that. And uh, we built a home in Stone Mountain, Georgia, where I was raised and on my daddy's farm. And uh, we didn't live in that house but like 12 months. And... uh, He told me that um, we were um, transferred back to Abbeville, South Carolina. 
And I'm going to tell you something. I had learned to drink by then. I didn't want to go to Abbeville, South Carolina. My daddy told me that if I went to South Carolina with that man, that I wouldn't be welcome to stay in his home. And I made a decision because my daddy didn't like him. He knew he drank, and he knew he was running around on me, and I didn't know that. And um, I told my daddy, I said, I'm going. And so when I got to Abbeville, South Carolina, this railroad man that I worshipped the ground he walked on picked out all my clothes from Fredericks of Hollywood. (laughs) And I went to Abbeville, South Carolina with clothes from Fredericks of Hollywood. Um, Now, some of y'all don't look at me like you don't know what that is. Well, that's them little bitty clothes that if it ain't taped on, it's hanging out. And I went dressed in Fredericks of Hollywood clothes, a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And I'm here to tell you those little ladies up there didn't like me. And I really didn't care. I like the men. I love to play poker with the men. I love to play golf with the men, and that's what I did. I hung out at the country club in Abbeville, South Carolina, and I didn't want to talk about what the ground beef prices were in Abbeville. I wanted to drink liquor, play poker, and do whatever else there was to do. My husband at that time, when we was on an outline job here, um... He was always home every night. So when we moved to South Carolina, he'd catch a train and he may be gone two or three days, come home, stay eight to 16 hours, turn around and go out again. And he was on the extra boarding. So he never was at home. And there wasn't a whole lot to do except at the country. And uh, that's where I stayed. I was a hairdresser. I worked part-time. He um, was gone and I drank. Now, there was a time in my life that that drinking was okay. I mean, it was sort of good drinking. But when I moved to South Carolina, I drank for everything. I drank because I was lonesome, and I drank because I didn't like him being gone, and I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I drank. And I, man, I could drink like I had a wooden leg. You know, I just drank, 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 drank. Well, when you drink like that and you're around all these men and the women don't like you and you drink long enough, you get to having sociable problems. <laughs> and my sociable problems was, hell, I got too sociable with her husband. <laughs> you know? And uh, these women began to talk about me and, you know, uh, I had two men that liked me come to my house one day and they tell me, they said, Everybody in this town's talking about you. And uh, he said, they said, you don't need to hang out with the men. And this town now had little uh, recorders in the every part of the square. They had cameras. And you could sit in your living room at home and watch downtown Abbeville. <laughs> you know. And needless to say, if I was flirting with their husbands, they didn't like it. So... You know, I guess I was on TV when I was doing But anyway, they told me. So I made a decision. Well, you know, I'll just be all right. Well, I had gone too far, too long drinking to be all right. I could not drink. Um, I, there was three liquor stores in a little bitty town of Abbeville, South Carolina. A little 
one door liquor stores and you didn't go visit all these liquor stores because they just knew who you were. So they had a little workforce corner uh, and in the mornings when my son would go to school, I would go pick up a guy and I'd say, I'd buy you a quarter of liquor if you go in the store and get mine. And I'd pay them and pay him and he'd go and I'd put him back out. And I would go drink. Well, wouldn't you know you think you would have a problem if you were doing something like that? Well, I never thought about having a problem. It was all these other things. I was at home. Uh, I became an, a battered woman, a wife. And um, my seven, six-year-old son witnessed all this. And uh, Nellie and I were talking about crying today. I don't cry cute. You know, some of these little women cry because they look cute, but I don't. Um, with my behaviors and my drinking, I was drunk. And when I got sober, I, I was, I'm a hairdresser. I was a hairdresser then. And I worked at a little beauty shop and da-da-da-da-da. And I had worked in a mill for two weeks. I was in a blackout for two weeks. When I got sober, I got a W-2 form from this mill in Abbeville, South Carolina, and I called up there and I said, what did I do? <laughs> and Patsy, the secretary, said, you were oppressor. I said, well, can you tell me what oppressor is? She said, well, when the little people made the clothes, I was at the end of the line and I pressed the clothes. And, the more, and I made some good money pressing. I must have been pretty good at it but I if I worked at a place for two weeks and didn't know it can you imagine what my son went through with a drunk mother I can tell you some of the things that when I drank I, I wanted to be horizontal I wanted to be in my green bathrobe and my ugly fuzzy, rosy pink shoes, and I wanted to be on the sofa passed out. That was my drinking. I couldn't tell you if that little boy had breakfast. I couldn't tell you if he went to school. I couldn't tell you if he got on the school bus. I couldn't tell you if he had dinner. And I'm not very proud of that. I would stay gone sometimes. I would leave him in the bed if somebody called and wanted to go somewhere and they had a bottle of liquor, I'd go with them. His daddy would be out on the railroad. I was the one that went into treatment and said, well, I didn't hurt my son. He never not drank. I said that. There was a beautiful man that lived across, the, and we lived on a circle, and he lived his house facing the other part of the circle. His name was Howard Corsi, and he made sure that my son had dinner every night, that his daddy wasn't home. And his daddy wasn't home much, because if he wasn't uh, uh, on the railroad, he was with Hoochie Mama, so it didn't really make any difference. <laughs> but... Uh, that's what my little boy went through. That was my youngest son. He's 34 today. 34 today, and my oldest son is 39. Um, in February of 1977, that little boy of mine knocked on my front door, and I opened the front door, and I didn't know who he was. 
And I looked at my hands and I didn't know who I was. And I told him, I said, if you know who I am, will you go please find somebody to help me? And he was walking toward Abbeville on the main highway. And I was supposed to do a lady's hair that day. And she, I didn't show up, so she was coming to my house. And she picked my son up and she brought him back to the house and they tell me they took me to the general hospital there and I spent one night and then they sent me to the to Augusta to the mental institution where Dr. Cleckley and Thigpen were my doctors and the psychiatric unit. They're, I was locked away for a long time. Um, I had 18 shock treatments there. I don't know whether they thought I was going to forget about what alcohol did for me or not. But um, during that time, my husband had told me that, that we were going to live together through Christmas, and um, he left me for oh hoochie mama, and I was there by myself. But uh, uh, the same hoochie mama that my daddy had told me about, by the way, so my daddy wasn't that dumb. But I stayed there because I didn't think I could do any better. And uh, I did things, and I went through things, that I wouldn't want anybody else to do. Um, I can tell you one thing, that I am grateful that I have an experience and that I know what living's all about. And I know that I'm a survivor today. My mother and daddy lived on a farm down in Covington, Georgia, and they came to South Carolina and they took this sweet daughter home with them and they were going to fix me. Um, they thought that I was mentally ill. And in that mental institution, they, my, the psychiatrist told my mother and my father that I would not ever be mentally stable to raise my children again. And my mother and my father came home and brought me home back to Covington. <clears throat> and they told me that they were going to get papers drawn up and sign custody of my two children over to their fathers. Now my mother and daddy was not mean. My mother and daddy were doing following directions. You know, and they thought they were doing the best thing for their little mentally ill daughter here. Because nobody had talked about drinking except the patients in that mental institution. And they, the doctor sent me home on an abuse. Y'all know what an abuse is? I know you do, Merle. <laughs> but anyway, um, my mother poked one of them things down my throat every day after I got to her house. But you see those people in that mental institution, the patients that told me, you can drink all that you do, take all the abuse you want, and you can drink a quart of orange juice and it'll coagulate the antibus. Let me tell you, I'm here to tell you it don't work. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I bought me a little bottle and hid it in my daddy's barn, and they thought I was having a heart attack, you know, drinking on top of it. Um, when I moved out from my parents' house, and my parents were the most loving people in the world to me. They tried everything in the world. And when I moved down in my apartment and I went back to drinking, my daddy knew that I was an alcoholic. There was no, he knew that drinking was my problem. I just thought I had done things 
and been places um, in Abbeville, South Carolina. But when I moved back to Hotlanta, let me tell you, I got into more trouble. I had nine DUIs. I never lost my license one day. Um, got locked up in Snellville, Georgia one time. And I was drunk as a motorboat. And I, the guy pulled me over, and he was a young cop. And he, I know today that I was so drunk, when he opened the door, I fell on the asphalt. But I thought he pulled me out of that car. <laughs> and I mean, he was a young, he couldn't have been 20 years old. I come up cussing him, and I took my long fingernails, and I come down his face like this. And he was standing there bleeding, and he pulled his pistol on me, and he was shaking. I said, I said just shoot me. Are you chicken? I can remember saying that. And he, he took me off to jail. I was in the Snailville jail. And I'm, I had South Carolina tags still on my car. And these people thought I was an outsider, you know, out of state. Well, I sat back there, I never forget this, in my cell, and I was screaming and hollering, telling them to call Jimmy Mason. Well, I'd been a hairdresser there between Snellville and Stone Mountain, and I did the mayor of Snellville's hair. And so finally, when I was drunk, screaming all these names, you know, and they come out there and they said, how do you know him? And I said, I'm his mistress. And he was <laughs> And he is really going to be upset with y'all in the morning when he comes in here and sees me in jail. And I'm going to make sure he knows how you mistreated me. Do you know they went and got my car and they pulled it in front of that jailhouse and they let this drunk out of jail? <laughs> and I called old Jimmy about two days later and I said, Have you heard about your mistress being in jail? <laughs> He said, I ought to kill you. But uh, that's the kind of things I did. And they let me go drunk, you know. They just get, get on out of here. Um, but I never lost my license a day after all that many DUIs. You'd think somebody would know I had a problem. Me had a problem being locked up so much. Um, my daddy... Um, and my mother started going to Al-Anon. And when my mother and daddy started going to Al-Anon, the Al-Anon program taught them not to give me any more cash money. Uh, so I had to start <laughs> stealing my dream. Uh, I know y'all don't know a nice girl like me. And I knew when I started stealing... I knew nice girls like me didn't do stuff. But, I mean, how are you going to get your booze? Well, people in apartments across the street, there was woods in back of them, and I'd go visit them at night, and I'd just go over and unlatch their sliding glass doors, and then the next day when they went to work, I could go in their back door and steal their booze and fill it back up with water, doing stuff like that. Then when they found out what was going on, what I'd do is, I'd walk to the little old 7-Eleven around this corner and I would steal enough wine in the morning to get okay enough to walk two miles down the street to steal a half gallon of vodka and go back and drink it and I did that one day at a time. <clears throat> now all my behaviors 
when you don't work and you stay drunk and your parents are going to Al-Anon, you got to find a way to make some money and, uh, uh, you know, so you can motivate. So I got the bright idea, and this worked back then. I went to DeKalb County up on Wind Drive to the health department where they keep all the death records and all that stuff. And back then they had them in big books. So I found me three women's names and three social security names. So they were dead. So I went to the bank and opened up my three uh, checking accounts. And then I went to the post office and I got me three mailboxes and these ladies' names. And it just worked wonders. You could write bad checks. And how you got away with writing bad checks was is back then the little Tilly Teller things, that it was a more computerized. So you could go over in there in the morning and you could put down how much money you were depositing and you could write, you know, get cash out all the time until that night it hit and they knew they didn't have money. But they didn't know who these were, see. So I'd just go to the liquor store and I'd get me four or five hundred dollars worth of liquor. I mean it was just great. And um <laughs> That's how I survived. Thank you, Al-Anon. <laughs> but you know, it saved my daddy's life. Um, my daddy told the people in Al-Anon that he would pay my rent because he could not sleep at night knowing that I was out in the street and in a ditch. And uh, I did a lot of things that I was ashamed of. I had to make a lot of amends. I remember when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had my little list, and I was going back to these wives of these men that I had harmed, and my sponsor told me right quick, it's the promise that says not to injure them or others. And I'm so grateful that I had wise people work with me when I came through the doors of Alcoholics I did not come through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was drugged back through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my father in 1977 was laying in a hospital on Thanksgiving Day. His, I didn't go see him, and he knew that I was drunk. And he called Jack H. that he had met his wife in Al-Anon, and he was an attorney. And he and my brother got commitment papers on me. And I was laying in my living room floor with my greenhouse coat and my fuzzy wuzzy pink shoes on. I don't know why I had to have the pink shoes on, but I've always worn them. And um, they sent a sheriff after me. Um, I didn't go to the door, so he just proceeded to break down the door. And um, he came in and he said, Are you? I forgot who I was then. Annette Faulkner. Annette Faulkner, that's who I was then. He said, uh, you know, you have so many of them, you forget who they are. And um, he said, uh, are you in that Faulkner? And I said, yes. And he said, are you going with me? And I said, no, well, I'm not. And uh, he said, oh, yes, you are. You know, these policemen, they have personality change when you tell them no. <laughs> and uh, he just, I said, let me get dressed. He said, oh, no, you're going like you are. Handcuffed me, slung me in the back of the car, and here I went. And Joe's sitting back there. <laughs> I think about the day when they were asking me all these questions. It's like um, I couldn't talk. I could not. I was so sick. But you know the sick part of my disease of alcoholism was when I was laying in that green robe on my floor and I weighed 80 pounds. 
I weighed 80 pounds. I knew if I had a drink of liquor, I would feel better. And you got to be a sick puppy to do that. And then they'd cart me off to Peachford Hospital. Jesus, Lord. They, when I got well enough to drink stuff and all these do-gooder people going around there laughing and teasing, and I mean, I thought, my God Almighty, I just need to get out of here. So, and I had not taken a bath in over three months. I could not remember to, I would fill up my bathtub and I could not remember to go back and get in that bathtub. I would find my clothes, had a little laundromat there, I would find my clothes in laundry baskets where there would be green stuff on them where I'd left them in a washing machine and somebody put them in my basket and somebody was nice enough to bring them back. I did not have the mind to go back and remember because I was drunk all the time. And I told you I walked to that liquor store on a daily basis, and I got so paranoid about stealing a half a gallon of liquor, I turned to a, I'd steal a pint of 190 proof grain alcohol, and that's what I was drinking every day. Had I known, I could have drank NyQuil, vanilla flavoring, anything. Let me tell you, folks, I would have done it. The only reason I didn't get on any other things was because they didn't have them 25 years ago. If they had them and they had it, the only thing I remember is going to drunk parties and smoking pot, and I loved it. But I didn't have enough whatevers to realize how to get it, so I just drank it at parties I went to. And let me tell you, if I'd have had a box of it, I'd have bought it. I mean, I just didn't know how to get it. Uh, and I didn't know you could buy it. But, I mean, if it had been the white stuff or whatever it was. But anyway, they committed me. Now, and I say this, and I know our state and our laws are wonderful, but today, when my father committed me into this treatment center, and they told me I was committed against my will, I thought I was going to stay there till I died. You know, nobody knows what commitment's about. Now, now they do because they have these little highfalutin patient rights specialists. They come up to you when you're committed, and they say, Oh, we have an attorney. Here's his card. What you can do is call this man if you don't want to be here, and you can, he can get a rid of habeas corpus, and he can get your body out of here. If they'd have told this little drunk that, this little drunk would have been gone. But you know, when I was drinking, I always did the deal. I was always willing. I was always willing to go with the guys, drink the liquor, drive, do this, do whatever it took. And when I got my eyes a little open and my ears, and they're talking about going to these dying AA meetings, and we'd go to these lectures, and these little lecture women were dressed like this, you know. And when I... My attire when I went out of my house was a pair of green fatigue pants, and they were cut up to my yeah yeah, and then they were beat up halfway to my waist with no underwear and halter tops, and a chain around my waist, and that's what I was dressed in. And I looked like a mean mother, and nobody ever bothered me. 
But now I was doing the deal. And then they come in, <laughs> I, they drag me to these lectures and they say, you got to do this and you need to do this and you need to go to these meetings every night. And I said, I stood up one day and I said, I cannot go to a meeting. I don't have a car. I've wrecked it. They said, you walk two and a half miles to buy your liquor. There's an AA meeting about six blocks away from your apartment. Stone Mountain Glenhaven Group. Well, that took all that stuff away. Yeah, I probably could walk. I could do this and I could do this. But, you know, the people that were there and the people that were in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous took this drunk woman, and they had to teach me everything I know today all over again. Because I had damaged 64% of my liver. I had cirrhosis of the liver. I weighed 80 pounds. I didn't have anything. I didn't have my kids. I didn't have my clothes. I had $17. I walked in that hospital and they lost it. <laughs> so they had, my, they had it filed in the wrong thing. It was an A instead of F. They lost my $17. Those patients that were in the hospital and they took up money and bought me cigarettes. So they found my $17. The doctor that came in that room that day, Conway, he had four people with him. Now, I had not bathed in three months, and I know I stunk. He came over to my bed, and he kissed me, and he said, I want to tell you something. If you stay here, he said, we will teach you how not to drink, and you won't ever have to be like you are laying in that bed ever again. In a matter of 10 days, I had decided I was going to run away from the hospital. I went out in the employee's exit, and I went. I was going to the Waffle House. I borrowed a dollar to use telephone, by the way, and to use the phone to call somebody, and I walked through that field down through there, and I got halfway, and it was pouring down rain, and I realized I didn't have anybody call. I didn't have one soul in my life that I could call to come and get me. And that was a moment of truth for me. All those other things was not a moment of truth for me. But that day, it just so happened it was me. I fell on my knees, and I said, God help me. I got up, I turned around, I went back in that hospital, I took a shower, and I sat on the front row of everything they had. I became willing that day to do something different, to take some action against my drinking to be different. There was a counselor there that owned a hairstyling salon in Decatur, and he fixed it where it was all right for him to hire me, John Gibbons, who now is dead. There was a male counselor at that hospital named Bubba Bird, who is now dead. There was a little bitty old man named Joe Hubbard there. And those three men got me sober. You know, they, they would never be my sponsor. No. You're getting a woman sponsor. But they were smart enough to know they could help me, I guess, because I didn't want any part of women. I did not want to be around women. I just didn't like them. They'd drag me in them dying women's meetings in there, and they'd just tear me up. And I, I didn't want to be around women. I wanted to be around men. And you know what? I thank God I got a hold of some men that were wonderful, responsible members of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And you know what those men taught me? They taught me how to have a relationship with a man, and they weren't interested in my body. If they were, they never said anything. They did these assessments on you. I never told them I had lost my children. It hurt too bad. If there's any women here tonight that do not have their children, you need to talk about going home and closing that door and not having those babies in your life and not being able to see those babies. It's one of the loneliest feelings, and I'll tell you what, if I could go back and change it, I would change it. They say not regret the past or wish the door on it, shut the door on it. I do regret that because there's times in my boys' lives that I see what, what happened to them during my alcoholism. They're survivors. They're, they have great lives. They're wonderful men. But if I could change anything, it would be that. They talked about sexual experiences and all this on a part of a little assessment. They asked me if I'd ever done And I say this, and I say this lovingly. Joel from Tyler, Texas says, by the time women get sober and they tell their stories, you think they were locked in a bedroom and had an eyedropper feeding them alcohol through the keyhole. Well, I was one of those broads that drank outside, and I did a lot of things, and I probably had a lot of Joels there, too. They talked about prostitution. Have you ever prostituted? Why, Lord, no, I have never been a prostitute. (laughs) But I tell you this, if a man had a bottle of liquor, he could do anything he wanted to with me. And if that ain't prostitution, I don't know what it is. And I say that because there might be one young woman in this room that thinks she's the only person. And I'm here to tell you, little lady, you're not. And I'm here to tell you, if you stay sober long enough, you can respect yourself and you can be a mother to those children. And you can be a respectable citizen in a community where you live. Because I wasn't, people were afraid of me where I lived. I chose to take drunk and live in the town I was raised up in, Stone Mountain. When I got sober and left that hospital and went to work, Um, with these people, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, literally, they took me in their arms. I had a lady take me shopping. When I went to the grocery store, I drank at least a half a pint of liquor while I was buying groceries. (laughs) You know, I kept a pint of liquor under my seat at all times. I came to my first AA meeting with liquor when my daddy drug me to a program of Alcoholics Anonymous one time. I was drinking. But I hear people today in AA meetings talk about sponsorship. Well, the only thing I worry about is when they come in that door and when they leave that door. That's the only thing I'm responsible. I thank God I had people. This man I went to work for, he took me to a store and bought me a pair of heels. I had been barefooted for so long, I didn't know how to walk in heels. 
He said, you're going to wear a dress to your first AA birthday party. I said, well, you ain't got to worry about that. Hell, I probably ain't going to stay sober a year. He said, no, but you're sober today, and you're going to learn how to walk in these high heels. <laughs> and when we didn't have customers, he'd put them high heels on me, and we'd walk up to the corner to the drugstore and buy something, turn around and come back. Now, I looked horrible walking in high heels, <laughs> but I guarantee you I learned how to walk in high heels. And let me tell you what those three men in my life did, including Joe Hubbard, that mean little old man. They took up the money, and one of them took me to Riches at North DeKalb Shopping Center and bought me the prettiest green dress you'll ever want to see. And I wore them beige high heels to my first AA birthday party. And let me tell you something, if that ain't loving somebody. See, I was so unlovable. Women really wouldn't have a whole lot to do with me. Joe Hubbard sent me to the AA meeting down on Peachtree Street. My God, there was a bunch of blue-haired little women there with spit curls and dripping in diamonds, and they had the pocketbooks matching their high heels, and they stood there, and they talked about being angry. Wow! I was, I was slitting tires and busting out windshields, you know? And here these little ladies were, you know. And let me tell you, they'd call on me to talk in a meeting, and I'd fill the air full. I'd turn it green with effing and MFing and everything. And you know them little ladies, they'd just sit there. They never said a word to me. They'd say, honey, you keep coming back. <laughs> you know, what the lesson I guess Joe over sent me down there to impress them. I mean, I was, I mean, I, I don't know. To, to show them what they could have been, I guess. But uh, he told me to go, and I went. I hear people come in AA now, and they say, well, I'm not going to do it. Give me a choice. They said, you go. You go to a beginner's meeting, and you keep your mouth shut. If they ask if you've got questions in the beginning, you better tell them and keep your mouth shut. You know, they didn't let us. My first sponsor was a woman. These three men, after my first AA birthday, got me a call. Uh, was my sponsor. You know why they got her? They got her because she lost her children. And that lady could tell me what it was like getting sober, not having her children, not seeing your children. I didn't see my little boy. Oh, Hoochie Mama wouldn't let me. You know. And I tell you what, you talking about wanting to kill somebody. I wanted to kill that woman. And I'll tell you this today, and I never tell her. If it hadn't been for her, I would have never studied the big book and practiced these principles and alcoholic phenomena. <laughs> because I'd leave South Carolina, she'd have my little barn boy hid in the barn. I'd have me a witness in the car, what the attorney told me to do. Go up there, da 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 and she'd say, he's not here. He doesn't want to see you anymore. And I'd come back to the state of Georgia squalling, heading to my sponsor's house. I did that for six months, every other weekend. Came back one day squalling. She said, now let me tell you, you go up there again, it's your own fault. You've done what the attorney's told you to do, and it's like a kid putting on your hand on a hot stove. If you go up there and get hurt again, it's your fault. You have made a pass. You have done what you were supposed to do. Now God will do the rest. 
but you see, I wanted to fight with the woman. <laughs> you know, that's where I was at that time. You know, seeing my little boy was irrelevant. I was going to get her. I had an opportunity. I'll tell you about that. Oh, I'm going to tell you about it now. I had an opportunity after I moved back to South Carolina for uh, to run over her on the side of the road one time her truck was broken in. <laughs> I didn't do it. No, I just, I mean, I... Something I, it was something better in my life. I just didn't want to do it, but I, I always wanted to have that opportunity. Now, if I'd done it when I was a year sober, I'd have busted her wall of an hour. To tell you something, my son was a, a junior in high school, and he was going to his junior senior prom. And he, the principal at that time, found out. Um, I got to see my son when I was two years sober. I don't know how they knew when my A birthday was, but they served papers on me to go back to court on my second A birthday. And uh, I had to go back to South Carolina, and I got up there, and it was snowing and ice on the ground. And when I got in that courtroom, there was half of my home group sitting in that courtroom for me. Uh, Bubba Burton, Joe Hubbard, Bramonium. And that judge taught, gave me unlimited visitation rights then, and uh, but they still didn't honor it. And my mother is a Southern belle. She just don't go where she ain't wanted, and she just does the right thing. I'm, you know, look prissy, prissy. She's a beautiful woman. My mother went to visit my ex-husband and oh, hoochie mama, <laughs> and uh, sat in the, their living room all day long to see her grandson. And she looked at that stepmom and she said, I'll be back here next Friday and I'm going to bring 10 days worth of clothes and I'm going to stay in your home with you or either I'll take him back to Atlanta with me. And Mom said when she went down the dirt road, there he was in the front porch with all his luggage. Uh, my little boy came to my front door. I didn't know he was coming and he knocked on my door. That was two years later, a year later after my sponsor told me to turn it over to God and God would take care of it. Who in the world would ever thought my mother would have intervened, but she did. Um, after that, I got to see him some, not very much. I went to a football game of his when he played junior varsity football. Um, went down to, uh, went up to South Carolina. No, I didn't. I went to Elberton, Georgia. They were, he was on the traveling team, and I sat up in those stands, and when she found out I was there, you know what she did? See, I thought I had it made. I could go to a football game. She made my boy quit playing football. And the principal had learned that I wasn't able to see my son, and he let Jimmy call me where I worked. Pitchford told me that. I told him on the phone that day, I said, I'm going to tell you something, baby doll. I said, if I don't ever get to see you till you're 18 years old, I said, I will never interfere with your life again. I said, I probably stuck my nose where it didn't belong. He said, well, Mommy, it'll be all right. Well, when he was a junior, he called me. He didn't know he wasn't, didn't have anything to go to the prom with, so I told him I'd be in the Holiday Inn at Anderson that day, and 
uh, when he got off school, and, and I was. And when I walked in my motel room, my phone was ringing in my room and picked it up, and it was Hoochie Mama. And she was crying, and she told me that my ex-husband had left her for a younger woman. <laughs> You know, it wasn't as sweet then as I thought it'd be. <laughs> she said, well, you know, she said, I, I went to North Carolina to see this woman, and, I, and you know, she was ugly. And I said, you know, that's the same thing I said about you. <laughs> I did get that in. But my hu- ex-husband had left my son with his stepmother, and she was taking his money, I had a little school bus he was driving and he, she was taking all his money, he was doing all this and so my husband Joe at that time made a decision for us to move to South Carolina and I moved, we moved to South Carolina and bought a farm and he moved in with his mama and my oldest son lived with his daddy and his stepmother and he says today that he's never seen me drink. Um, He's 38 years old, and uh, he went through his drug problem and uh, came out on the other side of it and did okay. Problems when he was 18 years old. And he just adores me, and he is absolutely precious. But he was out of that drinking part of it, and I'm really glad. And, you know, I don't know how he got not seeing me drinking, but he says he didn't. My youngest son went through torment with my alcoholism and there was a smart woman in this program told me when I said nobody ever he never at Mumble Drinking never bothered him. She said if you got enough guts after you celebrate your first uh, first birthday, you ask that little boy what he remembers about your drinking. And don't ever do it before you're years sober. That little eight year old boy that day told me that I would pass out when I was in the bathtub and he'd drain the water out and he'd dry his mother off and put a pillow behind my head and cover me up with a blanket. That's what happened to my little boy when I was drunk. And I had the audacity to say it never bothered anybody but me. That same eight-year-old boy about six months ago had an opportunity to come down and stay with me to work in our company for about four months, and I mean four weeks. And he gave me a little heart-to-heart talk, and he told me, he said, Mama, I wouldn't change my life if I could go back and change any of it, and I want you to know it. And you talk about a gift from a man. He gave me a gift. He said, you know, Mama, all my friends don't respect their parents. He said, I know what it's like not to have my parents. He said, and you know what? He said, I'm proud to have my Mama back in my life today. I separated from the only daddy that he really knew um, last year. And I never talked to my boys about the problems I were having. And after I told them, and they were shocked that I was getting separation and getting a divorce, my uh, oldest son said, Well, Mom, if you ever have any more problems, could you just mention them? You know? <laughs> uh, they were absolutely shocked. 
Because I told him if I figured if I was going to live, I live whatever that I wasn't, I wasn't going to tell it. And you know what? They're both friends with Joe. And uh, my youngest son told me when I called and told him, he said, I never thought I would have the opportunity to tell you this, Mother, but he said, you've taught me this since you've been sober. He said, Mama, I want you to do what you need to do in your life, and I want you to be happy. You know, and isn't that something to get back what he said I had given him? Um, they are just precious. They're survivors. They know how to take care of themselves. They know how to wash clothes, cook food, because they have to do it. You know, and I don't ever worry about him. Both of them, the greatest things about growing kids are they're self-supporting through their own contributions. <laughs> when, when Joe and I just made this decision in our, our marriage, um, I told him, I said, we've been in a program of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And I said, I want you to move out on Sunday so we can act like godly people. I said, we hadn't been in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and lived together for 20 years to fight and fight. Now, my sister's 10 years younger than I am, and she runs the company that, that was my daddy's that we both work at. And I told her, I said, you know what? I said, I just don't know about this moving out thing. I said, uh, what's he going to take? She looked at me and she said, anything he wants. Anything for your sake. <laughs> and I said, well, how am I going to know? I said, you know, that that's hard. I don't care how long you've been together. I don't care what you're going to do. She said, well, let me tell you, make you a little rude. She said, Annette, it is just things. She said, you're breathing and he's breathing. And she said, if he asks for it twice, let him have it. And you know, it worked really well. It's just, uh, it ain't living. I'm living today and I'm breathing today. And I got my heart broken, so did he. But we both work together today. Now, I don't know what the lesson is that I'm supposed to learn, but I'm trying to hurry up learning. Because <laughs> it ain't easy. You know, but there's a lesson I'm supposed to learn, and I'm supposed to try to practice these principles today. See, there's always got to be one of them in my life, and I ain't a stepmother, it's somebody else, that, that I have to work. You know, I get to be, in, it gets to be too easy sometimes, and then I just get this cruncher, and i got to work, 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 work. If it had not been for the people in a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, this drunk would not be here. If I didn't have people take me by the hand and show me how to go shopping and buy my shoes and teach me how to walk, I wouldn't stay sober. John Gibbons told me to read this paragraph in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous every morning before I went to the bathroom. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get sober in spite of anybody as long as he trusts in God and clean house. And you know what that little paragraph in that big book told me? This sick drunk can stay sober. 
I didn't know I could stay sober. That little paragraph told me I could. I didn't know what cleaning house was. You know, but by God, it told me I could stay sober. And then you people taught me the rest of it. Um, I wouldn't take a million dollars for the old timers that I had. I wouldn't take a million dollars for those men that helped me get sober. I wouldn't take a million dollars for the women in this program today. Because I know how to stay sober with women, and I love women, and I love al You did take all my drunken money away, but... Uh, I thank the committee again because this is sort of like coming home. I lived in South Carolina and my daddy, my rock in my life, died in 1994. My brother died in 1996. And I always told people if my daddy wouldn't get it for me, my brother would. And you know what? Annette's learned how to get her own stuff this past year. And I appreciate y'all listening. Thank you.